My name is Roger Clark, your host for this edition of the Four Score and Seven Project, a production of the New Majority Foundation. Our topic today is free speech and the internet. 2024 may be a watershed year for this issue. And there's a lot of people who believe that the Supreme Court has its crosshairs on free speech in the internet because they've accepted by last count four major cases that are gonna give significant definition to the concept of free speech in the internet world that we live in today. There are many who believe that the answers that the Supreme Court gives to this issue will determine whether or not we continue to have a successful democracy or not. We are very fortunate to have as our guest to discuss these issues and what's going to happen in 2024, Professor Barry McDonald from the Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law. Professor McDonald is an illustrious professor. I don't mean to embarrass you, but you've got uh, a tremendous CV, resume, uh, upon graduation from uh, Northwestern Law School. Once upon a time, uh, you clerked for Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, you became a professor, I'm, without, I'm eliminating a lot of stuff in between, but you've been a professor at uh, Pepperdine for a good, uh, close to a quarter century. I, I believe now. 23 years. Uh, a prolific writer. Uh, you're a scholar at uh, Pepperdine on constitutional law with a particular emphasis on First Amendment issues. You have appeared on CBS, uh, Fox News, a variety of cable and network television and print media such as the Washington Post and the uh, New York Times and others as well. We are very fortunate to have you with us, Professor McDonald. Well, thank you, Roger, for having me. So this is a lot to unwind. Uh, we live in a very complicated time, uh, a lot of issues that are new and novel uh, that we're all wrestling with. Uh, there are many of us, including me, who feel like we live in the Dodge City of communications because of, because of the in invention of the internet and the creation of all these social media websites and internet uh, service providers and so forth and so on. So it's a lot to unravel. Tell us, where do we start unraveling this? I think you start unraveling it. You call it Dodge City, the Wild West. Uh, it, it sort of is. I mean, the internet is relatively new and and modern, uh, and uh, it it can be a cacophony of voices. Uh, but I think you, what you're seeing is sort of a uh, evolution of the same model that you had when you had traditional broadcasts, which is certain players, social media companies, uh, you know, like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. TikTok, uh, X, you know, funneling the vast majority of, of those communications between people. And so uh, they are sort of becoming the gatekeeper in a lot of ways uh, to a substantial stream of communication in this, in this modern society. So I think that that focusing on what's going on in those platforms does help us to sort of figure out what, what the issues are and what we need to be dealing with. Well, our paradigm, um, as I understand it, uh, and please let me know where I'm gonna drift, drift off center on this, because I know I'm gonna drift off center on some of these points, but um, since uh, 1996, I think, was the Communication Decency Act of uh, 1996, which we've all heard about this infamous or famous Section 230, of, of that act, uh, which there's been so much uh, discussion about it over the years, but at least since that act, and that's been uh, almost 30 years ago now, uh, that the assumption is that um, the social media sites, these internet service providers, basically function uh, more like a traditional newspaper um, uh, th than they do a commentator, but with exceptions, because uh, with uh, Section 230, they're deemed not to be a publisher or a speaker, so they, they have a uh, immunity clause. But then there's another section of the 230 that says they can moderate content, they can delete posts, uh, basically for any reason they want to, subject to an undefined term of, of good faith, uh, which, which again, to me, strikes me a little bit that, that Wild West analogy I was talking about, which kind of puts into, to, to my sense, in, into issue. Uh, is uh, who, whose right of free speech are we talking about? Because I know that the social media platform will claim it's our right of free speech. And there are a lot of people out there who say the ones who are using these social media platforms are saying, no, it's our 
right of free speech. So where do we go? Well, you're quite right. There's two, when you're talking about uh, free speech on social media sites, you're talking about two layers of expression. You're talking about the uh, speech that occurs by the users of the site, and you're also talking about the uh, speech uh, or expressive activities uh, of the site itself in terms of curating and moderating the content. Uh, and in terms of Section 230, that was adopted on the, that was when the internet was just getting going, and it was adopted on the theory that uh, we need to provide some breathing spaces for these new uh, internet companies who are hosting content uh, to be able to do that without fear of liability from harmful content uh, or illegal content that uh, their users might host. And, uh, you know, and I think it was, it was good and uh, the idea was good in, in its inception, but I think uh, once you get going with something, it becomes hard to change. And I think we do need to revisit Section 230 because now we have these behemoths, you know, of, of the internet, like Facebook, Meta now, I guess, uh, uh, X, uh, you know, Google, YouTube. Uh, I don't, I just don't think, I, I don't think it's striking the right balance now. I don't think those companies need that sort of protection from immunity. And in fact, I think uh, it probably does more harm than good in that they can be more lax in terms of, uh, you know, harmful content that might appear on, the, uh, on, on their uh, platforms and, and not do anything about it. Uh, or they should have done something, but maybe they didn't. And, um, so I think, I think we, you know, we need to revisit Section 230 and the balance it's trying to strike between the, these, uh, these business entities and uh, uh, you know, the, the generating that free flow of inter, uh, information on the internet that we're looking for. Well, let me, let me just pose a hypothetical for just a minute. Um, and uh, let's assume for a minute that you become the communications czar of the United States and, and you have the ability to, with a stroke of a pen, uh, revisit Section 230 and modify it to create a better balance in today's reality, what would you do? I mean, I might remove immunity altogether from sites, uh, companies that have, you know, certain net worth, you know, uh, and uh, I think those kind of companies, you know, they're lawyered up to the max, I mean, can sort of adopt the sort of policies that they need uh, to make sure that their platforms are being used responsibly. And uh, I think the legal doctrines in place uh, that would shield companies like them, uh, other than Section, two uh, Section 230, if they're making good faith efforts uh, to make sure that, you know, their content, uh, their, their platforms aren't misused, uh, you know, would probably do the trick. The existing doctrines, the existing immunities that are out there in the in state law and, and uh, so forth. I mean, I need to. I'd, I would need to sit down and really take a look at this. I'm not, you know, uh, an expert on Section 230 by any means. Uh, uh, that's more of a communications law sort of issue than a constitutional free speech issue. Uh, but uh, that's my sort of off the top of my head thinking about that. Well, it, it seems, seems that the biggest uh, thing that gets, gets people agitated um, is, is the political content uh, of, of, quote, the so-called moderation uh, that goes on with social media sites. And, and, uh, uh, and that's what gets people uh, really angry or, on the other side, maybe pleased. Uh, it depends on what your political stripe may or may not be. Um, and th there seems, and, and the perception anyway, is that the moderation from the, the Facebooks of the world and you know the X, or which formerly Twitter and all of this sort of stuff is 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 in f not in favor of the right of center points of view. Um, and whether that's right or wrong, uh, that is certainly is, is, is a perception. Um, and uh, I think that a couple of the cases that are pending before the Supreme Court are uh, the states of Texas and the states of Florida passed laws um, that uh, were intended to limit the ability of the uh, social media platforms to moderate points of view, pol particularly political points of view. And I think those are the, there's uh, one case out of Florida, one case out of uh, Texas. They've had different journeys in the lower courts, but they've now both been joined together, I think the Supreme Court has agreed to take those cases on and hear them jointly. Uh, are you able to discuss some of, some of those cases and, and some of the issues in those cases? 
Sure. So, you know, if you listen to red state governors like uh, uh, Abbott in Texas or DeSantis in Florida, to hear them tell it, uh, it you know, the uh, tech titans in the San Francisco area, you know, the, the uh, blue Democratic area are trying to impose their li uh, liberal values uh, on the people of America, wherever those people may uh, happen to reside which, you know, if you're from a red state, that, that sort of results in a perception that, uh, you know, the way that they are curating and moderating content uh, on their platforms uh, is, like you said, it's, it's more from a left of center, a liberal perspective, and they think that they're engaging in uh, viewpoint discrimination uh, against conservatives and, and their viewpoints. And so what the uh, Florida and Texas legislatures did was to pass laws. They, th these laws look a little bit different, or very different, I should say, but they essentially get to the same thing. They essentially prohibit uh, social media companies of a certain size from engaging in viewpoint discrimination. And, you know, it's designed to prevent them from in, you know, doing it against conservative points of view. And so uh, they have challenged, their, their trade industry uh, organization has challenged these laws in both Texas and in Florida. Uh, That's a net choice. Uh, net choice, not right. Not Netflix, but net, net choice. Net choice yes. Right. And they have claimed that uh, these laws violate their free speech rights to be able to, uh, you know, curate and moderate content uh, as they see fit. Uh, and in one sense, they're right. I mean, if you're a, if you're a private actor, uh, you uh, are not bound by the First Amendment. You are not bound by free speech restrictions. It's only the government, uh, with certain limited exceptions, that is bound to honor First Amendment uh, protections. If you're a private company like, like Facebook or, or uh, X, you can get users to sign, and they do. Get, you, know, you click on that uh, terms and conditions if you want to become a user of the platform. And in those terms and conditions, it essentially says that you agree that, uh, you know, Facebook X or what have you can moderate content uh, in their discretion as they, as they believe uh, warranted. Uh, and so it's really a contractual matter when you're talking about private entities in terms of, you know, the, the look and feel of their platform, what kind of uh, environment they want to foster in terms of community of discussion and so forth. And so, you know, when, uh, when, the, when these laws are saying, okay, you can't discriminate against uh, people on the basis of their viewpoint, they're seeing these laws as their attacks on their ability to sort of moderate problematic content, like hate speech, right. uh, extreme content. Uh, and they're basically saying, no, we are like newspapers, which, or television uh, stations, which the Supreme Court has recognized that they do have First Amendment rights when they exercise editorial judgment in the types of mm -hmm. content that they want to publish. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that, uh, you know, these platforms do uh, exercise editorial judgments in terms of what kind of content they want their platforms to carry. But at the same time, they're not like newspapers and broadcast stations uh, in the sense that they're not sort of just delivering their own content or content that they paid independent contractors to create, uh, like freelance reporters. Uh, they are actually a platform that, that is hosting speech of others. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you could make the argument, like the uh, red states are arguing, like Texas and Florida are arguing, that th these, these platforms are more like common carriers like a, a telecommunications, a telephone, a wireless telephone company, or, or an internet, internet service provider that just provides a pipe, uh, where, you know, they, they, they don't engage in free speech, uh, you know, so, so that any sort of con moderation or curating of content is very minimal, and the free speech rights that are really at issue here are those of its users. So we have these two competing models uh, so Florida and Texas are arguing the common carrier telecommunications type model. Uh, uh, NetChoice is arguing, no, we do a lot of curating, moderate, we, we express ourselves a lot in the way that we curate and create an environment for expression. And so the Supreme Court is going to sort of have to decide 
uh, where, where that falls. Because if they are common carriers, they probably are subject to a lot more obligations in terms of uh, just letting that free flow of content, whether, whether it may be extreme or not, uh, unless it's illegal, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, if they choose the, uh, the uh, newspaper model, then uh, they're going to have a, uh, the right to do a lot more of that, uh, First Amendment right to be free of these laws. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, companies like Facebook, X, they, they sort of fall in the middle between these two uh, polar extremes. Uh, they are somewhat, uh, you know, pipes, but they are somewhat also newspapers uh, in, in a certain sense. And so I think this is going to be a real delicate, uh, delicate balancing act that the Supreme Court is going to have to engage in in, in, to, in terms of trying to strike the balance, right balance between the free speech rights of these uh, uh, platforms and the free speech rights of, of their users. Well, well, you know, you mentioned uh, f briefly uh, the dynamics of what free speech is, and I want to come back to that uh, because a lot of us just throw out the concept of free speech without really understanding some of the implications of what really is constitutionally protected free speech and what we may consider as being free speech, but it's not constitutionally protected. I do want to come back to that. But, but here we're talking about these net choice cases that, that to me, are, are, are have, by accepting these cases, the, the, the Supreme Court has clearly focused on the issue that you're mentioning. Uh, who, whose right of free speech is it? Is, is it the platforms or is it the user? Uh, and uh, so it's a ex potentially ex explosive issue um, that, that's going to define uh, after when this decision comes down, as expected sometime in 2024, it's going to define who we are and how we communicate ideas and concepts in this country uh, and elsewhere for the for foreseeable future. But it, it seems like with something's got to give between these Florida and Texas statutes and uh, Section 230. Uh, am I right or wrong? One of them's got to be unconstitutional or it's got to be curtailed somehow because how, do, how does the Supreme Court find its way to striking a balance on this issue? Uh, because on the one hand, you got Section 230 that says the, that the server or the um, um, platform, social media platforms ha have the right to moderate content. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got uh, Florida and Texas saying, wait a second, they should not have the right to moderate content when it deals with a point of view, particularly a political point of view. Well, there is a preemption argument there that uh, Section 230 sort of preempts these sort of state laws. Uh, but 230 is really designed to relieve the platforms of civil liability in terms of lawsuits and judgments mm -hmm. when people sue, uh, when they claim they've been harmed by certain statements or posts of users, they also sue the platforms too for usually negligence in allowing that sort of thing to occur. And that's really what is the heart of 230, was to provide that sort of immunity from civil liability judgments. We're talking about monetary damages yes. uh, that, that for defamation yeah, type, yeah, type things. So. Paying a lot of money in, in yeah. these lawsuits. And so, uh, again, I'm not an expert on 230. I'd have to go look at it in terms of uh, if it says anything about the ability of governments to directly regulate through criminal sanctions or uh, fines the actions of uh, social media providers, but I doubt there is much in that. I don't think 230 was designed to do that. So I, I'm not sure that there's a real tension between 230 and states uh, attempting to say, okay, if you engage in viewpoint discrimination, for example, uh, and it's proven in a court of law, uh, you're going to pay a uh, criminal penalty or a civil penalty that effectively amounts to a criminal penalty. I, I'm not sure that that was the design of 230. So, but I think there are some arguments being made about that, uh, you know, but uh, uh, I'm not sure that they're very strong ones. Well, that's, that's fascinating because you can kind of thread the needle, uh, leave 230 alone if it only deals with civil liability, that's fine. It, it can sit here on, in this corner uh, and give an immunity from the defamation type damage lawsuits, but on the other hand, uphold the uh, Texas and state legislation uh, on a constitutional basis, um, but, but it would still require some kind of decision that it's the user of the social media platform's right of free speech, not the social media platform's free speech that 
trumps, or am I missing something? Well, the 230 issue would deal with just statutory interpretation. So was 230 designed to give social media companies broad immunity, not just from money judgments by uh, people that sued them, but also freedom from regulation by government entities? That, I think, is a much more, again, I'm not, I'd have to do more, a lot more work on 230, but I do not think that that was the purpose of 230. Uh, to give them, uh, blank, you know, immunity from being regulated by states. Uh, so, you know, I think you'd have to get th- through that statutory interpretation issue first on 230. And, and then, depending on how that is resolved, then you'd go into the constitutional free speech issues to say that, okay, well, uh, either 230 does allow Texas and Florida to do, to do this, then you'd have the free speech issues kicking in. If, if, it's a, if you say 230 doesn't allow then it's a statutory issue, and you don't really even reach the constitutional free speech issues. Oh, well, fascinating. So, and, and again, you know, you mentioned, um, um, you know, concepts like Speaker's Corner. Uh, you know, in, in my mind, it's not this country, but in Hyde Park and London, there's Speaker's Corner. So very, London, England is famous. You can get on Speaker's Corner, people can pretty much say anything they want to without fear of repercussion. Uh, or we talk here about the town square, uh, or maybe once upon a time years ago, there was litigation over people who wanted to go and stand on the sidewalk of a shopping center and, and speak. And shopping centers didn't want to have speakers saying things that were deemed to be offensive or interfering with the customers. But my recollection is that the Supreme Court ultimately said that, that is a, the shopping centers were a public square effectively a public square, a public place where people could speak subject to time, manner, and place limitations. Um, uh, is that correct? They originally said that, and then in a later case, they pulled back on that substantially. Right. But, but states like California uh, can give broader protections for free speech if they want. And there are California laws that say that, you know, in certain conditions, you can uh, engage in free speech activities on certain private properties. Right. Uh, so I, I think from a First Amendment constitutional law level, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has retreated on the view that property owners have to open up their property for uh, free speech. But again, it, you know, if you're, if you're a California, you can go beyond that and give greater free speech protections as long as it's consistent with the rights of the property owners. Right, right. Well, uh, then this issue is going to be uh, squarely before the court. Um, and and uh, who has whose right of free speech are we talking about? Coming back to this issue again, because I know the social media platform saying it's our right of free speech. We have the right to moderate content, uh, including discriminating from political points of view. It seems to me, but yet the users are saying, no, it's my right of free speech, and you can't shut me down. And that seems to place squarely uh, before us the issue of this what I call the town square public property are, are these social media platforms uh, the, the equivalent of a digital uh, public square? Uh, you know, that, ultimately, what, what's the answer to that, do you think? Well, I'm not sure it's real property issues uh, are that helpful uh, uh, in this environment, because I, I, but I do think the town square analogy is apt, uh, because this, you know, this is social media platforms are the place where you know, you, you get a lot of people coming together these days to exchange viewpoints. Unfortunately, not, not as much as I would like because one unfortunate tendency of the internet and these social media platforms is to just engage the idea of like-minded people, you know, yeah. and just sort of uh, communicate with those you think are on your team, so to speak. So, which which uh, to, to me is a threat to democracy. If you're only talking to people who think like you, 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 you don't grow. Absolutely. So I think in, in a sense that it is like the speaker, speaker's corner or the town square in the sense that, yes, people are converging, but I think that, you know, it, it's not so great of an analogy. Well, you know, you could, you could look at it as it, on the town square, you have people going this way to the, on that side of the town square, people going on that side of the town square, they're all talking to each other, and when they go this way, they're just fighting with each other, you know, and not really listening. And uh, uh, so, I mean... I think some of those analogies are helpful and some aren't, you know. Well, do you have any predictions on, on these net choice cases, uh, what the Supreme Court is going to do? 
I think that the Supreme Court is going to tread very carefully here. Uh, I don't think this is going to be sort of the great statement that defines uh, people's ability to speak uh, on the Internet for years to come. I think the, uh, if, there's a, if there's any area uh, the, where the Supreme Court, and they're not always cautious, believe me. I mean, they, 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 they've, uh, they've had some real bloopers in the past. They but, are fond yeah. of exercising their power when, when they think they have five or six votes to do it. Uh, I think too much so, but that's another story. We could, we could digress there. But uh, I think in this area, free speech tends to be one of these issues that, that you don't see the traditional breakdowns of liberal justices lining up against conservative justices. Uh, it, it makes for strange bedfellows uh, in a lot of cases. It's a very yeah. American issue, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is not so uh, sort of receptive to ideological uh, uniformity, you know, in terms of thought. Uh, and so I think the Supreme Court is going to tread very carefully here and try to just only decide what it needs to decide uh, in terms of trying to strike the right balance in these particular cases with these particular statutes. So if you read the, uh, the lower court, the, the, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals opinion about the Florida law, it's all about, you know, the, the free speech rights of the uh, of the platforms, you know, to be able to moderate and curate content. If you read the uh, the Court of Appeals decision from the Fifth Circuit and and Texas, it's all about oh censoring the speech of the users, you know, and ultimately reducing free speech, and very little about uh, not so much of an emphasis on the free speech rights of the platforms. So the Supreme Court is going to have to, as I said before, going to have to try to figure out uh, where to go on this. I think they're going to have to try to strike a, a decent balance of interest. But I think in doing that, they're only going to sort of say what they need to say in this case. Uh, and that's their typical pattern in these Internet cases. They, they wax eloquent about how this is the future of free speech and so forth, but then they tread, tread very carefully and only decide what they need to decide because they know, and I think this is smart, they know that they can't envision how, you know, if they, if they were to lay out uh, broad black letter rules as to what you can or can't do, they can't envision all the myriad of circumstances or problems that that could have unintended consequences for. Uh, so I wish, I, I think they're going to uh, proceed cautiously. I wish they would proceed more cautiously in other areas of the law, but again, that's a, uh, uh, that's a separate subject. We know the, the wonderful thing about, about, about the Supreme Court, uh, every decision they have probably made, and we're pushing 250 years, not quite there yet, of experience with the Supreme Court, and uh, people constantly complain about it, uh, protest against it for 250 years, whatever the decision may be, but the institution has survived uh, because it does work. Or maybe to say another way, if we took out the Supreme Court out of American government, what are we going to replace it with? Uh, and, and so it works, uh, not necessarily well. Uh, and, it, and it may take decades to correct uh, to correct errors, but but it's there. So it, it it it's I think it's been referred to as a unique American idea, or maybe it was a American idea by default. You know, there's all this debate about whether the founders really ever anticipated uh, judicial review. I, I think they did understand judicial review personally, but I don't think what they understood was judicial supremacy. Uh, that, I think that's a key issue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you that the founders uh, would be shocked at the, the uh, decisions that the Supreme Court takes on to itself and decides very uh, broad matters of important public policy that they would no doubt say this is for the people's representatives to decide, for the legislators to decide. And the founders, you know, the Bill of, most of these cases come out of the Bill of Rights where the Supreme Court is interpreting these very broad and general provisions called uh, free speech or free press or uh, free exercise of religion or due process of law or equal protection of law. They're very, very uh, vague and general phrases. And most of these pronouncements about broad public policy come out of the Bill of, you know, these Bill of Rights cases that have been incorporated to the states through the 14th Amendment, but that's a technical issue. Um, the founders, the Bill of Rights wasn't even on the radar. I mean, that was one of the things that almost got the original Constitution sunk, 
was the fact that uh, it almost went down to defeat in the ratification conventions in the various states. A couple of those conventions were like just a couple point oh, difference. Uh, 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 it's, it's close. We almost did not have this constitution. And the only reason we have it is because people like James Madison, uh, Alexander Hamilton, those that were in favor of the new constitution, made a gentleman's promise. Uh, they said, uh, look, you know, we know you're upset that we didn't have a Bill of Rights. Uh, so, you know, we promise that if you vote to ratify this Constitution, uh, one of the first orders of business of the new Congress will be to draft a Bill of Rights and send it to the states as, as, as amendments to the Constitution. And, and that sort of, you know, that was enough to get the Constitution to barely squeak by, barely squeak by into approval territory, and it was adopted by the requisite uh, nine states. But once, uh, once the new government was up and running, James Madison had to really sort of cajole his fellow congressmen uh, to say, hey, we promise that we need to work on a Bill of Rights, but they were more busy trying to get this government up and running. But after, you know, so after, uh, you know, uh, going after him a few times, they, they finally said, okay, James, you go and draft it. And so he did. Uh, yeah, he, he, so this is Madison's language that we're talking about in the Bill of Rights. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. He, he, so he, he pulled uh, together the uh, existing state constitutions that did have defined Bill of Rights. He pulled together sort of the amendments that the states had proposed to make to the Bill of Rights. And so he's looking at these and he sort of cobbles together, uh, you know, the, the, this, this 12 amendments to the Constitution. Only 10 made it through the ratification process. But you get the sense that it was sort of very hurried. It wasn't really thought out. It wasn't subject to much debate. It went through a few committees and then was sent out. It was just—it was almost the Bill of Rights was after, almost an afterthought uh, uh, to prevent uh, a lot of uh, anti-federalists from demanding that a new constitutional convention be convened to add more amendments to the because they were worried about the size of the federal government, how powerful it can become. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's kind of funny today. Everyone holds up the Bill of Rights as this sort of icon, American icon, but it was really, in its infancy, it was just an afterthought. Uh, it was a political expediency measure. Uh, and so, and that, and all, now, that, all that to say the founders weren't thinking about these broad general phrases in the Constitution and, and what might happen if the Supreme Court were to, to start deciding cases about that, and they didn't foresee the evolution of a very sophisticated e economy, society, et cetera, and how important some of these issues might get. And so when a lot of these major public policy rulings uh, about you know, campaign finance, uh, the ability to spend money in connection with elections, uh, abortion, uh, same-sex rights, uh, I mean, gun rights, you name it, I mean, uh, that have a profound everyday influence on Americans, they would be shocked to see what that Bill of Rights that they had considered an afterthought had, had the, the sort of power it had given to unelected judges is how they viewed them. They wanted to stick to their nitty in terms of deciding specific and narrow legal disputes and have the government run by the representatives of the people in a democracy, the president, the Congress. Congress was designed to be the main engine of democracy. Uh, the Supreme Court was, uh, or any court, was only going, supposed to get involved, any lower federal court, if there was a case or controversy that needed to be decided. And it was the view that unelected judges who weren't accountable to the people should just be, you know, doing their role as an uh, umpire or a referee on legal disputes. Uh, but for them to see what that has morphed into today, uh, this sort of notion of the Supreme Court that is supreme in matters of constitutional interpretation, and what's, once they uh, issue a ruling that everyone has to listen to them, whether it's Congress, whether it's the president, whether they had a chance to argue their case in front of a court about uh, you know, what that uh, provision should mean, the founders would, would just be shocked at this. James Madison would be doing backflips probably? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, well Je Thomas Jefferson in particular would be rolling in his grave. Because uh, he, he, in particular, were, even back then, were sounding the alarm bells about how these vague prov uh, provisions of the Constitution could allow courts uh, who weren't accountable to the people to essentially dictate uh, very important issues of public policy in a, in a democracy that is, by definition, supposed to be a government of the people by the people and not by five unelected 
uh, lawyers that have been appointed to the Supreme Court or any federal court for that matter. It's, it's almost like, uh, who was it, Plato and his philosopher kings, right? It, it's almost like we've anointed the five, at least five, justices on the Supreme Court as our philosopher kings uh, who determine issues of importance. The platonic guardians. The, the platonic guardians. Are, I mean, you see, that, but, you see that phrase appearing in a lot of vigorous dissents by justices. Who do we think we are? A council of platonic guardians? The only problem is they only use that when it's convenient. You know? <laughs> and when they're the ones that are uh, sort of issuing these problems, then they're being attacked for that. You know? So it just sort of goes that way. Well, how, how did we get to this? Uh, you know, the founders didn't see it they, this way. They didn't write the Constitution with the intent of making the Supreme Court our platonic guardians, but yet it happened. Uh, reasons, why did that happen? Is it because of default, because Congress wasn't uh, um, keeping up, unable politically to address uh, changes in the society, or because we couldn't uh, uh, pass the constitutional amendments uh, because of the structure that uh, the founders gave us? Uh, any, any thoughts on why we got oh, to Oh, yeah. Point? I mean, I've written about this. Uh, I have some uh, editorials in the New York, or op-ed pieces in the New York Times about it, but there's a couple of things. Number one, the... Um, sort of, uh, it's not, you can't say this was a mistake because they just didn't foresee this, but they just didn't foresee the rise of, uh, the very rapid rise after George Washington uh, stepped down from his president. George Washington hated partisanship. He thought it was damaging to the country. They did who, not. Who, 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 who's to argue he was wrong? <laughs> so I, uh, I, I mean, I argue uh, he's right. Today, I'd argue he's very right. He's right, yeah. Um, but they did not foresee how uh, once he stepped down and, and there was a power vacuum, all of a sudden you had the rise of these polarized national political parties that made, it, made a lot of the institutions that the, uh, the, the, the founders created in the Constitution, uh, it made it harder for them to operate in the way that they had intended. Congress being, they, they intended Congress to be the engine of democracy to, to you know, because they were the closest to the people. You know, the House is, uh, and part of the Senate is elective every two years. So, you know, it's the people that they have the, to be the accountable so-called people's to. house uh, on the but, house, but, house. But with this, you know, this blue-red divide that has occurred, uh, they can't get anything done. So Congress has, has become the weakest of, of our institutions, of the three main institutions, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And for that reason, now you see all the power transferring to the executive, you see all the power transfer, or I shouldn't say all, but a substantial power transferring to the judiciary and the Supreme Court. And so that's why you see the kind of battles that we just witnessed over the last, you know, five, six years over the White House. Right, right. That's why when there's a seat open on the Supreme Court, it becomes a political circus uh, in terms of who is nominated and who gets concerned. I mean, it, it, it's just all-out political warfare. It's because the founders didn't see that, you know, the main institution that it thought was going to drive American democracy has become very weakened, and all that power has shifted to institutions that weren't designed to do it. And so that's why we have these, these battles over, over, the, over the executive branch, over the uh, judicial branch. Well, that, that raises the interesting question. So we have these uh, unelected uh, individuals uh, sitting on the Supreme Court. So it's, I guess uh, a lot of people disagree with this, but at least in the political theory, it's the most undemocratic branch of government. Uh, I, I think the argument is that the House of Representatives is the most democratic. Uh, the Senate, which the way the founders originally envisioned it, were to be appointed by the state legislatures, le legislatures, and and then every four years, of course, uh, the president uh, would be elected indirectly. Uh, but yet, the ones who were never elected were the Supreme Court uh, justices. The question I have for you, though, if, if more and more power is going to these unelected justices, what does that mean to our Republican democracy? I mean, it means that we're less democratic uh, and we're subject to sort of the shifts in the political philosophy of a majority of justices that, that hold power on the Supreme Court. So for many years, uh, you know, the court was dominated by Democratic appointees that tended to vote uh, more liberally. And that's when you had the Warren Court uh, that had, you know, had a vast expansion in, in protections for civil rights and civil liberties and, and criminal rights. Uh, and then you, you sort of saw the, the 
Burger Corp being a little bit more centrist and then the Rehnquist Corp becoming more conservative and wanting to sort of cut back on some of the uh, more liberal ex extensions of the, uh, uh, of the Warren Court. And, um, uh, and now, you know, of course, with uh, President Trump uh, uh, unbelievably getting three appointments in a one-term presidency, that, that's, that's almost unheard that's of, extremely rare. Uh, he was able to tilt the balance. I think George Washington got away with it uh, <laughs> because he had yeah, no he, one to replace. Right, right. <laughs> but he, he, I mean, he, he, so he has pushed the uh, Supreme Court to a very conservative position. Uh, and uh, so now, uh, you know, our, our fundamental law depends on, you know, uh, which presidents have the happenstance to uh, get a chance to uh, you know, fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And so our fundamental law sort of shifts by virtue of that happenstance, which is not what constitutional law should be. Our fundamental law should be stable. It should be predictable. People should be able to order their lives around it. And so it, it's not working out uh, as the founders, I think, uh, would have liked to have seen it. And, uh, uh, I, you know, and, and, and another part of the problem is that the Supreme Court itself has been a lot of the problem. They, you know, for, for many years, uh, you know, Justice Felix Frankfurter, for example, being a prime minister, he, he, would, he would advocate judicial restraint. We have to recognize our role here uh, to, to sort of interpret the laws that's put it in front of us and, and decide no more than is necessary. We, we really don't have the mandate to do any more than that. Well, the Supreme Court has just done away with that. They are, as I said before, they are just more than happy to sort of take on these these uh, power playing roles. And uh, uh, and you know, frankly, uh, a lot of times the, the senators uh, from whatever party that are appointing them and uh, are, are behind them, and that's why they put them on there. They expect them to do that, and so. Uh, the founder's role, I think, of what a judge should be in our society has, has been radically altered, and I think it's a real part of the problem. Well, I guess another way to say that is a power has a tendency to grow, particularly if there's a vacuum, uh, it seems to me. And I think what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that there has been a vacuum created over several hundred years because of Congress' uh, inability to act, and that vacuum has been filled by the Supreme Court, and it is continuing to be filled and will continue to grow, I think is what you're saying. Well, yeah, but it's really a modern phenomenon. So, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court has been political for, uh, a, a, you know, in the, in the 1800s, not so much. Early 1900s became uh, somewhat political until FDR said, stop it, or I'm going to get Congress to pack the court. and, and uh, so he get his New Deal legislation through. And things quieted down for a little bit, but then, uh, you know, it was really with uh, Brown versus Board of Education uh, where, and I understand why this happened, because when the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision decided 9-0 that, that the Southern states mainly had to desegregate their public school systems. And the Southern states were saying, you know, who are you, uh, you know, nine lawyers in, in Washington, D.C., to be telling us what we can do uh, with our public education system? Uh, they were, there was massive defiance uh, in the Southern states. Of the oh, I remember as a young lad uh, sitting in the back seat as my father was driving us and seeing these big billboards that said, impeach Earl Warren. They were all over the place once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah, there was, it was very controversial. And so uh, a few years after Brown versus Board of Education, uh, a case came back uh, to the Supreme Court about, you know, whether the state of Arkansas and certain other states had to take certain remedial measures to, uh, it, Cooper versus Aaron is the decision. Uh, and the Supreme Court by that time was sick of being uh, ignored. Uh, and so they signed a, each justice signed this opinion, which is very rare for every justice to put their name on an opinion. That, that never happens. So they were obviously trying to make a statement here. But unfortunately, what, from my perspective, maybe fortunately from the perspective that I think judicial supremacy is, is a good thing, uh, uh, the, the court sort of uh, reached back in time to Marbury versus Madison and took a line out of Marbury versus Madison that I think they took out of context. 
And they basically said, you know, we said then that we are supreme in matters of constitutional interpretation and we mean it. We are, when once we speak, everyone has to listen, you know, whether it's the president, Congress, state, state governments. Uh, I understand why they did it, uh, because they were, you know, they were under assault. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, after that, it, it sort of took on a life of its own, you know, this, this notion of judicial supremacy, and they just sort of evolved it from there. And, and the people, the most American people, this is an arcane legal issue. They, they just sort of don't even focus on it and don't even know it's happening. So you, you, you could say that uh, the Supreme Court sort of accreted power to itself with no one to really oppose it other than presidents once in a while voicing objections to the amount of power that the Supreme Court has taken onto itself. And Congress has become weakened, and they're almost glad to see the Supreme Court take on these controversial Well, it takes it issues. off their controversial political plate. Uh, uh, all they care about is, you know, getting money to, uh, you know, run their next election and hopefully save their jobs in Washington, D.C. And, and they don't want anything controversial that, that could potentially get them voted out of office. And so we have a lot of uh, structural issues in our democracy that are problematic. Uh, that we, you know, it's not clear how they're going to get fixed, but we're going to have to muddle through it until they are fixed. Uh, at the same time, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be a doomsayer. I mean, I do think that uh, the founders, particularly James Madison and company, were, were very sort of brilliant in the way that they structured our, our government in terms of separating power and checks and balances at the federal level, and then you have vertical separation of power uh, between state, local, and federal government, where each are sort of jealously guarding their turf. And so I do think that that, that sort of uh, reliance on the self-interest of politicians and governmental entities and so forth creates this sort of equilibrium and stability that has allowed our constitutional system to survive now for over, uh, you know, 230 years. I, I think it's the oldest constitution still extant, isn't it? Uh, except, except for the British constitution, which is unwritten. Uh, well, I mean, it just depends on how you describe it. I mean, the state constitutions were the first written constitutions and, you know, they, a lot of them have been amended and replaced and so forth. But certainly uh, from a national government's governance perspective, I mean, the, uh, our constitution has endured with a limited n number of amendments, probably more than uh, for far longer than any other written constitution in the world. Um, in terms of reform of the, of, of the Supreme Court, I know it's been suggested from time to time um, I seem to have a vague memory that Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president, was proposing uh, a reform that would allow controversial or any decision really of the Supreme Court on certain issues, probably constitutional issues, could be reviewed by a national plebiscite. Uh, and if you had a, a two-thirds or three-quarters of the people vote against a certain opinion, then the Supreme Court would, would be reversed. Uh, so you actually restore the people back as the ultimate determiner of some of the Supreme Court decisions. Uh, uh, is there any discussion or d any serious debate about uh, uh, trying to recover some of this power that the Supreme Court has uh, uh, absorbed uh, in the vacuum? I mean, you see proposals being floated, and, I, and I'm sure you could find some draft bills that have been introduced uh, in Congress to... Uh, create a system of uh, national referendums, so forth on, you know, that address cases that not only just Supreme Court cases, but other constitutional issues. I mean, it happened in, it happens here in California. I mean, sure. same sex marriage. You remember when the California Supreme Court decided in a uh, four to three decision that uh, uh, the equal protection clause of the California constitution demanded that uh, the state recognize same-sex marriages in the same way as traditional marriages. And in Prop 8, uh, the people in the referendum reversed the California Supreme Court. And, and then, of course, the federal courts, after the people had reversed the California Supreme Court, the federal courts reversed the people of California. But, but it, you know, that was just an example of how that works. Uh, and so there have been a lot of proposals for, for that sort of thing at the national level. But Again, it's just hard to get anything done these days, much less a uh, Ma major change like that. Yeah. And yeah. The, well, C C California uh, obviously as a as a laboratory uh, for the nation. It uh, one can work. Some can argue maybe that 
no one wants to emulate California government because it's so dysfunctional. Others may say California government is very functional. Uh, so that's another debate for probably for, for another day. Uh, but yet you've got the laboratory experience, and that's been around for a hundred years or so, I think, during the uh, early, uh, early progressive era of the 1900s, I think, is when that law came into place in uh, California. I'm not sure if I've got that correct, but somewhere in that era. Oh, so the, been, uh, the National Initiative Law? I mean, the, uh, the, the California Initiative yes, Law? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think somewhere around that time. Somewhere. So, so, so it's been around for a long time. Um, well, but, but let, let, let's say the California model were proposed, again, effectively, it, it, it's now a proposed constitutional amendment, uh, a United States constitutional amendment, so, so, so that there could be a referendum on uh, decisions uh, that are made. It, it, to amend the Constitution? To, uh, to, or, or to reject. Uh, so, so you have an amendment yeah. to the Constitution to restore to the people the ability to review under some format or formula decisions made by the Supreme Court so you can then shift some power back from the Supreme Court back to the people directly. Would that be a good idea or a bad idea? I, I personally think it, something along those lines would be a good idea. Canada has such a mechanism. So in Canada, if this Canadian Supreme Court interpreting their Constitutional Bill of Rights makes a, a, a certain ruling that a province disagrees with, now the province can hold a vote uh, to essentially uh, not comply with the uh, Supreme Court's ruling if it disagrees with it. But then they have to, every five years, sort of renew that vote. So it comes up every five years, but if they keep every five years voting to not comply with the Supreme Court ruling, it's built into their constitution that they don't, don't have it. So it is a, they don't have to. So it is a political check uh, on their Supreme Court, and I think that uh, I don't, you know, uh, it could look a lot of different ways, but I definitely do think that we need more of a, uh, a democratic check on the Supreme Court because it just is pretty much non-existent today. Uh, I mean, there is something in the terms of the president being able to appoint a vacancy, but that depends on happenstance. It's a very, uh, you know, in terms of sort of uh, uh, popular views being incorporated by a justice that gets uh, uh, put on the Supreme Court. It's a, it's a real lag period, you know, in terms of for that, that sort of thing to take place. So it's a very ineffective political check on the Supreme Court. And uh, I do think we need, we need to do something in the future. Professor McDonald, this has been a wonderful discussion today. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to having you back for part two. Professor Barry McDonald. Thank you for listening and watching the Four Score and Seven Project, a production of the New Majority Foundation.